Tonight's scripture reading is from the book of James, chapter 3. I will be reading it first in Cantonese. 今天的经文来自雅各书第三章我的弟兄们不要水多人做教师因为你们知道我们做教师的要接受更严厉的审判原来我们在许多事上都有过失若有人在言语上没有过失他就是完全的人也能立住自己的全身我们若把着环放着马嘴里自他们顺服就能控制他们的全身再看船只虽然审大又比强风猛吹只用少少的驼就吹着掌驼的意思转动同样切求是小字体若能说大话看那最小的火能点燃最大的树林切头就是火在我们白体中切头是过不易的世界能点点活全身也能烧毁生命的轮子而且是被地狱的火点燃的国里的早受悲盘爬虫水族本来都可以制服也已经被人制服了为着舌头没有人能制服是永不长止的邪恶充满了害死人的毒气我们用舌头掌掌我们的主我们的天父又用舌头阻咒照着上帝形象彼着的人仲就我我就从同一个口出来我的弟兄们这是不应该的穿原能从一个出口发出甜苦两样的水吗我的弟兄们无花果树能三甘榄吗葡萄树能结无花果吗咸水也不能流出甜水来你们中间谁是有智慧有见识的呢他就当在智慧的温柔上献出他的善行来我们心里若为着恶毒的嫉妒和自私就不可能可自夸不可说谎话带动真理这样的智慧不是从上头下来的而是属地上的属清欲的属鬼魔的在何处有嫉妒自私在何处就有冬暖和各样的坏事为着从上头来的智慧先是清洁后是和平温良柔顺满有怜悯和美思的果子没有偏私没有虚伪正义的毒果实是为促进和平的人用和平再种来的这是神的话语 This is the word of the Lord um, James 3, 1-18 Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers 
For you know that we who teach will be judged with great strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. For with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we come now and we bow our hearts before your word. We know that... Your word is the bread of life. Would you feed us now, we ask, in Christ's name. Amen. It's uh, never a good idea when preparing a sermon to say, "I I think I got this passage. I don't really struggle with this sin, especially if that passage is from the book of James. You know, the Lord has a funny way of humbling us. And uh, more than ever this week, I've been eating my words, and the word has really been a scalpel and a balm for my soul. And the Lord has helped me to see the deeper things in my heart and really lead me through a sweet time of repentance in this uh, past 10 days or so. And I hope uh, that the word that was just read to us would have the same effect as it exposes that it would also heal and restore and redeem. And uh, before we dive into the passage, let me just say the book of James can be difficult for some of us. I know you're not alone. Theologians throughout history have struggled with this book, namely Martin Luther himself. But I think what we're seeing here is not how we earn salvation, but what does that salvation look like lived out in practical ways. And James challenges us to look at something like taming the tongue, right, and obtaining godly and biblical wisdom 
so that we as God's people might better reflect Christ and his gospel. A few weeks ago, one of my children, he who must not be named, (laughs) made a Mother's Day card. It's one of those uh, classroom exercises where you fill in the blanks. It's not very hard, right? Things like, my mother is, and then a blank. My mother likes to, and then another blank. And you fill it with wonderful, you know, just warm, fuzzy, precious moment stuff, right? Typically, children would write things like, my mother is the most beautiful lady in the world, or my mommy makes the best food, or my mother holds me when I am sad. But the said child is anything but typical. So when he told me that he brought home a Mother's Day card, I was very eager to read. I got permission to share this, okay? So the first line killed me. I mean, it killed all of us. It said, my mother is lazy. (laughs) My mother likes to be alone. (laughs) You can't make this stuff up, man. Sometimes reality is stranger than fiction, and this is what we have to live with. I don't know if you ever get a chance to see me interact with the said son, but oh my, never a dull moment with that guy. It's been said that sticks and stones may break my bones, but your words will never hurt me. But we all know that's not true. We all have scars to prove it. And words have a profound impact on us. We talk about how powerful stories are in shaping who we are and our own stories. And stories are nothing but a compilation of words. And the Bible recognizes the power words have. Proverbs 12, verse 18 says, The words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Again, Proverbs 15, 4 The soothing tongue is a tree of life, but a perverse tongue crushes the spirit. Proverbs 18, 21, the tongue has a power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Simply put, words matter. And we live in a city that gets this. We have people that make a living out of words. And then we have people who make a living studying the people who make a living out of words. And so does James. James knows that words matter, that they are powerful, even in our worship to God and our relationship with others, and so he offers this wisdom for us. And again, it is not saying that we, by living according to this biblical wisdom, can somehow obtain salvation from God, but he is saying that this is how we as God's people ought to live so that we can honor God and love God our neighbors well. So let's listen in and let's look at two things this evening. First, taming the tongue. Taming the tongue. God gave our first parents, Adam and Eve, many gifts, including the gift of language. And words have the powerful effect of awakening imagination, expressing our affections, and helping us to connect both with God and others. It's what makes us human. And words also play an important role in our relationship with God. God reveals himself through the written word, the incarnate word, Jesus 
himself. And we use words to worship, to sing songs of praise to God. And we use words to pray. We use words to share the gospel. We use words to encourage, to admonish, and so on. God's, now, it's a precious gift, but along with everything else, sin ruined God's good gift, including the gift of language. And God's judgment in Genesis 3 must have sounded strange to Adam and Eve, who were only accustomed to hearing words of blessing, words of love, words of intimacy. And for the first time, they're hearing words, strange words, speaking of curse and death. And later in Genesis chapter 11, at the Tower of Babel, God curses the language of people gathered in Shinar, who were there to build a tower for themselves. And it's interesting and almost comical when you read Genesis 11, because it says God came down and saw what the people were doing. And so he confused their language and scattered them. But God does not end there. Curse is never the end of our story, especially for God's people. Redemption is. In Acts chapter 2, God redeems the gift of language. And there, as his people gather to pray in the upper room, the Spirit comes. And he gifts the people the ability to preach the gospel in their native tongue. What was cursed in Genesis chapter 3 and again in Genesis 11 is restored and redeemed. And for the first time, people that had gathered to worship on that special Pentecost were able to hear the gospel preached in their native tongue. And God redeems the language so that it once again becomes the vehicle by which God is honored and we can love neighbors well. And the good work that began at Pentecost is not yet over. There is much that remains to be done. In fact, Jesus' last charge in Matthew chapter 28 includes the importance of words. He commanded his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. In other words, God calls us as redeemed people to redeem our words so that words will now reflect his mercy and grace. And so that we as this community, as we think about being salt and light, a gospel witness in this city, that we would pay close attention to our words. And James here illustrates the power of words in verses 3 through 6, and he uses three examples, a bit, a rudder, and a spark. Now, these are relatively small things compared to a horse, a ship, and a forest fire, yet they wield much power. James continues to say, Tongue has power, and at, at its worst, it's like a fire from hell in verse 6. And James is not done. He goes on to say that a tongue is a restless evil, verse 8. It is the only weapon that gets sharper over use. And it is a deadly poison, again in verse 8. And James saves the best for last. He says a tongue is hypocritical. We can see how all the previous ones apply to non-Christians also, but this last point applies only to Christians. And he makes the case, how can we, at one moment, worship and praise God 
to utter sacred words in prayer to God and then turn around and curse the people that are made in the very image of God. This kind of hypocrisy, James says, should not be. In fact, he would say, how we speak is not a secondary issue. Our words, how we say them, when we say them, matter tremendously. In fact, to James, he says, our words is a litmus test for true spiritual maturity. Now, for some of us, it's hard to wrap our heads around this because in our culture, we often downplay words, don't we? We say things like, yeah, you can talk the talk, but can you walk the walk? Now, there's some truth to that, but there is this idea that words are cheap. But James says, no, actually, it's a true indicator of your spiritual maturity. Follow along. He writes in chapter 1, verse 2 to 4, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. In other words, suffering, if we receive it by faith, and allow God to work through suffering to form and shape our faith, we can actually mature and be complete, not lacking in anything. And later in the same chapter in verse 22, James goes on to say, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And he picks up on this theme of how you can grow and be mature in your faith. Not only do you take suffering with faith, but you also receive the word by faith. So that the word that you hear is not something that sits here alone, but it gets lived out. It has a transformative work in your heart in who you are and how you engage the people in your life. That's how you grow. That's how you become mature. That's how you become Christ-like. And the way that you can tell how well you are doing, James says, is by words. By words. I don't know about you, but that surprised me. And I had to sit on that for some time. Really? By my words? James says in chapter 1, verse 26, Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not, hold, uh, yet, uh, do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. In other words, the words that we speak Words that we throw out carelessly, words that we could wish we could bring back because we said it in a moment of anger or frustration or in a moment of pain. These things actually are windows that show us what's really in our hearts. That's exactly what Jesus said. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, we read, For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Again, in Matthew 15, verse 18, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. And James gets this. He understands that our words aren't just words, but it's connected to something much deeper, our hearts. And as Jesus said, we reflect with words what is in our hearts. 
Theologian Sinclair Ferguson once said, Temptation often find their easiest access route to the heart via the eyes. By the same token, sin may find its easiest exit route from the heart via the mouth. And I think he's right. In, our, in other words, words are important. They say a lot more than we think, and they reflect the heart. And if that is the truth, then it behooves us to discipline our tongue, right? And James will say, yes and no. Yes, in that we need to exercise self-control. That we are deliberate and intentional about speaking words that will build others up. Words that reflect his grace, his mercy, his kindness towards us. But that cannot be the starting point. Because James says in verse 8 of chapter 3, no human being can tame the tongue. So while we seek to control our tongue, we have to start our work somewhere else. So let's look at our second point together, transforming the heart. Transforming the heart. James's main point here is not for us to try harder or do more so that we, with our words, can reflect God. That's not where it begins. No, in order for us to redeem our words so that our words reflect Christ and the gospel, we must, as James tells us, first address the heart. Why? Because biblical wisdom is not in the articulation of things or our ability to phrase things in such a unique way. These are gifts from God as well. But biblical wisdom really starts in the heart. It is a transformed heart. Heart that gets the gospel and that is so radically transformed by it that it begins to reflect our Savior. That's biblical wisdom. And that work, the transformation of the heart, has to happen first. Because when we are filled with his grace for us, then we begin to express that with our words. And that's where James is getting at. He reminds us that biblical wisdom is, as verses 13 and 17 say, godly character. Who is wise understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. Again, verse 17, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Again, Sinclair Ferguson is helpful here. He says, we should not be surprised by James addressing the heart when he talks about the importance of words. After all, is, is it not a rider who controls the bit that controls the horse? There is the human element here. And it's the sailor who controls the rudder that controls the ship. And likewise, it's the human heart that controls the tongue that controls the words. So if we want our words to reflect Godly, biblical wisdom that we must, first of all, get godly wisdom in our hearts. So how do we transform our hearts? How do we get godly wisdom in our hearts? The first step is to receive the forgiveness of God. It's to receive the forgiveness of God. 
It is true that we are a lot more broken and sinful than we think. If we think grace is more amazing, more abundant than we ever think it is, then that's also true of our sin. That we, when we, in our honest moments, see a glimpse of who we really are is but a surface-level understanding of the sin that has really broken us to the very core. Puritans used to say, the seed of every sin is in our hearts, and I think they're true. And when we, if that is the case, that we are broken, more broken than we think we are, that in order for us to obtain biblical and godly wisdom, then we have to understand the forgiveness of God. That's where it begins. Why? Because once we understand the forgiveness of God, then it stirs new affections in us so that the command to speak words that build others up is not just a command, but it becomes our desire, our will. It's what we want, our, what we long for. You see, when we understand that God deals with the weak, the inadequate, and the unders- undeserving without any merit, even in our worst moments, that he meets us with mercy, that's when we long for change. You see, in order for us to undergo this radical gospel transformation of the heart, it takes us wrapping our arms around this amazing truth that we are not our sin and that we have been forgiven, accepted by our Father and He loves us just as we are. And if we could wrap our minds around this and live out of that reality, then even speaking words that encourage and build others up becomes our delight. We're going to fumble our way through it, but it's the longing of our hearts. That's the reach, the thing that we want more than anything else. And it's that grace that draws us out of place of shame and hiding and invites us to be transparent, to be honest about our brokenness, to say, God, I am struggling. That's not where I want to be, and that's not who I want to be. And God says, great, let's talk about that. And he works with us. And he transforms us. And he moves our hearts so that obedience becomes our delight. Earlier in the service, we read from Isaiah chapter 6, and I think this really is Isaiah's testimony. If you know anything about the ministry of this prophet, you know it was not easy. If you continue on in Isaiah chapter 6, you know that his ministry was really, really hard. That God would send him to a people who would not listen And with a message that is not very welcoming. He is not seeker-friendly at all. And yet God commissions him to this ministry to declare the word, the difficult word that people are not going to listen to. And I'm sure as Isaiah was listening to that, he probably wondered, where is my hope? Where is my strength? How can I do this for the rest of my life? Because if I were to turn to the law and religion, there is no way I can do this for the long haul. I need something better, something greater, something that would change the very heart so that my obedience becomes delight. How can this happen? And we see it here in Isaiah chapter 6. In chapters 5 and 6, Isaiah pronounces six judgments. And he basically calls out the people of God for very particular sins. And the final judgment that Isaiah pronounces is actually judgment 
to himself. As he beholds this scene, God enthroned, the seraphims worshiping, he is undone. He falls to his face and he says, Woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And it's at that moment, one of the seraphims takes a live coal from the altar. What do you do on the altar? You make sacrifices. It's prefiguring of Christ and the forgiveness that we have in Jesus and his blood alone. This angel takes a live coal and he touches Isaiah's lips and he cleanses him. And it is there in that moment Isaiah understands the mercy and the grace of God. That he has been forgiven. And that he has been invited into a relationship with this holy God. And that he has been commissioned by this holy God for this very work. I wonder how often Isaiah went back to remember that moment. When his message was not popular, when people turned from him, how often did he go back to that moment to say to himself, I am not my ministry's success. I am not the number of converts I am not even the popularity of my message. I am forgiven, accepted, loved by this God. It must have been life-giving for this prophet to be faithful to a point of death. So we, as God's people, if we want to be transformed and begin to use our words in ways that will build others up, it begins here. It begins by understanding the amazing grace, the amazing mercy that's been shown to us to know that we are forgiven, accepted, and loved. If you skip that part, everything else becomes religion, and it becomes really hard. And none of us, none of us are religious enough to be faithful to the end. We need something better. We need the gospel, the grace of God, to continually move our hearts. In addition to forgiveness, we also need to believe that God desires wisdom for us more than we desire wisdom for ourselves. Going back to chapter 1, verse 17, James reminds us that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights. The Father of heavenly lights. James reminds us that God is not an ogre in the sky, but he is a loving, gracious, generous father who delights in giving good gifts to his children. And the picture here is not us trying to negotiate, somehow earn the gifts that God wants to give to us, but simply to pause in the busyness of our life. And to reorient our hearts from all the other things that we chase after to say, God, you're right. I need wisdom. And that's more than enough for God to give us wisdom. He delights in giving good gifts to you. 
Not only do we need to believe that, we need to pray. We need to pray. Again, chapter 1, verse 5, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. We need to pray. And when you pray, asking for wisdom, be confident. Because the moment you begin to ask God in prayer, He does not pull out some chart to see how well you performed this last week. It says that He does so without finding fault. And we know why. Because Christ bore it all. There is no fault for those who are in Christ. We have been given not only new life, but perfect righteousness. And so when the Father sees us, He sees us as He sees Christ Himself. And He says, no fault. Of course I want to give you these things. And so the prayers that we pray, they become prayers that Jesus prays. And thankfully the Spirit in Christ alters that and edits it as necessary. And the prayer rises to the throne and he answers. We have to believe, we have to pray, and we have to obey. We have to obey. Wisdom is closer than you think. In fact, James reminds us in chapter 2, verse 21, humbly accept the word that is planted in you. In other words, wisdom is already in our hearts. It's planted there. Why? Because the Spirit of Christ, Christ who is the wisdom of God, resides in us. So it would do us well to listen to the word that has been given to us, to struggle through it, to believe, to pray, and to humbly submit to the word that's been given and actively and intentionally live it out. So, as God's people, call to redeem our words so that in our speech we reflect a Savior who is gracious and kind. I think we need to start by believing that our God is a gracious God who delights in hearing our prayers. And He has given us everything we need, the Word, the community, so that we can be encouraged again and again, to live out this call to build up the body of Christ, to be a witness for Christ in this city through our words. Let's pray together. Father, we come and we ask that you would help us as we have heard these words to commit to living it out. Help us, Lord, to know that you are not only calling us to use our words to bless others, to love others well, but you are in that work. You're helping us to believe. You're helping us to pray. You're helping us to obey. And so, Lord, help us again to find our strength and confidence, our hope in you, so that even as we leave this place, that we would do so confidently, knowing that he who called us is faithful, and he who goes before us will do this work. We pray all this in Christ's name.